Ice the pies that builds the boat and ice the pie that sails her. Ice the pie that catches your fish and takes her home to Lizer. That's our friend Schooner Fair piping in Boat Talk. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 4 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill, 89.9. I'm Alan Sprague, uh, co-host of Boat Talk, and uh, John Johansson is um, AWOL right now, but I'm sure he'll be here shortly. And we have a special guest here today, too. It's... um, Uh, Well, I'll let you introduce yourself, Penobscot Marine Museum. Great, thank you. This is Karen Smith. I'm the executive director at the Penobscot Marine Museum. Thank you so much for inviting me over today. Well, welcome, Karen. Uh, Penobscot Marine Museum, and it's right up the alley for boat talk. Um, How long has the Marine Museum been in existence? Well, we were founded in 1936, so... So starting our plans, Coming up looking up, years. yeah, uh huh, yeah, mm. getting excited. Yeah, that's good. And you are the director. How long have you been director? Um, just about five years now. Uh-huh. Yeah. It must have been uh, when you uh, had the opportunity to apply for that job. It must have been pretty exciting to be a director of a marine museum. I think that would be a pretty good, uh, high on my bucket list of uh, things to do. Yeah, it's been wonderful. It's really just an incredible museum with an outstanding collection and amazing staff. And interestingly, I don't come from a maritime background, but it's made it even that much more of a thrill to kind of learn this whole new world mm-hmm. and um, be here on the mid-coast and learning about the collections and everything that we do. Okay, let's let's talk about the collections. You have uh, an amazing uh, collection of uh, model ships, I, I, a particular f- uh, interest of mine, model ships, photographs, a great photograph department, um, several buildings that contain different things. Why don't you uh, give us a little brief rundown on just the, the campus? Yeah, campus is the right word. We have a remarkable campus in Searsport. I'm right in the historic downtown. And we do have a very extensive collection that ranges, as you said, everything from model boats to we have over 300,000 photographs of Maine and maritime topics and expanding out from there. We also have a very extensive um, maritime documents and manuscripts collection and library um, and quite a lot of nautical charts. And then on that campus, we have a, a wonderful small boat collection that includes a lot of main built wooden boats and we have a sea captain's home and um, a whole range of ways that pe- people can experience the maritime history and culture and present day uh, culture of the mid-coast main area and Penobscot Bay. Okay uh, um, just first uh, I should mention also too this is a call-in show if you have any questions you'd like to uh, to, to make about the Penobscot Marine, Marine or anything else, any nautical, we'll see if we can come up with an answer for you. We have a temporary phone number right now, so write this one down if you want to call in Boat Talk today. The number is your code 207-618-8819. That's 618-8819 for Boat Talk today. Um I'll throw out a name, Maynard Bray. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about small boats. Uh-huh. Yes, we are very thrilled that Maynard has entrusted us with his 
incredible photograph collection. And that is one of the projects that we're working on right now is processing those images. And um, one of the things that our museum has been on the leading edge of is digitizing and making publicly available many of these images that we have. And so that is a major project that we're working on right now is his incredible, you know, decades of images of uh, boat building and sailing and rowing. And it's just been remarkable to have that honor of processing those so that people can view them and uh, we can preserve them for the future. Okay, great. Um, so Maynard, uh, his list, can you give a little bit of history from Maynard? He's he's definitely been in the uh, marine business for quite a long time. Yes, he has. Yep, and um, we are very lucky to be able to see sort of the images that he took kind of growing up on the coasts of Maine and in Ro the Rockland area, and then, of course, his time at Mystic and um, taking images at, at um, boat building shops all throughout the coast and capturing those for the future. Okay. Um, this is a Fred uh, call-in show, and we have a call-in already. It's our friend Fred up in Tenants Harbor. Good afternoon, Fred. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hey, thank you for the program. Uh, let me turn my radio down all the way. There we go. Oh, thank you. Um, a, um, an acquaintance friend of mine, a guy named John Shelley, years ago, did something called the Maine Watercraft Museum in uh, in. Um, Thomaston, and I, for, for some reason, I never got there, and then, and then it ended, and I wonder if he, anybody, uh, if you or anybody who's listening to the show knows about it, and uh, uh, just, uh, I'd love to hear commentary about it, and um, I'm sorry I missed it. The name is not familiar to me. No, uh, unfortunately. Was, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm I'm a, a certain age, so it was uh, two, three decades ago. Who knows how long? I believe it was all or, or mostly uh, freshwater craft, but perhaps not. Uh. But it was in um, Thomaston, perhaps where Lyman Morse is now, or close to there. And uh, so, anyway, I was just wondering about uh, about it and. All things, and I love your program, and uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Fred. What, what was the name of his museum again? The Maine Watercraft Museum. Watercraft Museum. Yep. Yeah. Huh. That's a that's a, another research project for the uh, Penobscot Marine Museum, right there. Uh -huh. One more. <laughs> yep. Thank you, Fred. All right. Thanks very much. Talk to you next time. Okay. Bye. So. Uh, Freshwater, do you have a special uh, department of freshwater versus saltwater at the museum? No, we do not specifically, but um, that's an intriguing question about that museum. We do have a mix of, um, of those smaller wooden boat collections, some that were used in salt and some in fresh. And um, right now we have actually sort of reinterpreted those small boats to try to give people kind of more of a narrative arc so that we get a lot of visitors who don't know anything at all about the boats they're seeing in front of them. And so it can be kind of mystifying, you know, why are we displaying, for example, 12 pea pods? Um, whereas someone who knows a lot about them could look at them for hours to look at the differences in design and yeah. construction. Um, so we've kind of reinterpreted a number of our small boats through the lens of the rusticators who um, commissioned them to be built or use them as part of their 
um, lives on the main coast. And so we were kind of bringing out a lot of those stories, whether it's, um, you know, racing in a yacht club in salt water or going out fishing on a lake. Um, so kind of bringing those pieces all into the story of those boats. So, okay, the Boat Talk is a a boating show, but there's a lot of people who aren't really boaters when they're listening to the show. And uh, I'm hearing those people in the background say, pea pods? <laughs> <laughs> how, how, do you grow, how do you roll a vegetable? Uh, <laughs> a pea pod, yep. uh, for definition, I guess, is a, a, a boat that looks pretty much uh, symmetrical front to back. It's pointy on both ends, and uh, they're they were very common in the day, but they were a quite handy boat because being pointed on both ends, they can go forward and backwards quite easily and were quite maneuverable. And that uh, that's a peapod. You've probably seen pictures of them. It's different than a dory with a square end. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. We're quite enamored by our peapods because they are such a quintessential main boat, and they help us teach people the stories of lobstering and the unique features of the main coast that drove a lot of the design of the boats um, so that people could kind of get into all the nooks and crannies. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, we love our peapods, but (laughs) we have to work to interpret them for others sometimes. So is the, uh, when you come to the museum in Searsport and you go to the admission office and you get into the building, the first building, I'll call it, um, uh, with a lot of paintings, you, you, uh, Do you have, uh, I guess, a fund or some sort of an endowment for buying marine paintings? Um, We have been gifted many of the paintings that are in our collection, Mm -hmm. Um, and we are kind of at the point where we're looking now at more, um, being more proactive and thinking about what kind of gaps we might have in our collection and how to raise the funds for future purchases. Um, But we've been very fortunate um, to have a long history of dedicated donors, both financially and in terms of the artifacts that we have. Um, so, yes, that's helped build our large collection. Yeah, yeah, donations, I'm sure, mm-hmm. are, are a big part of that. Um, <clears throat> I have, a, personally speaking, a, a fairly large old uh, wooden tool chest with several sliding doors, and it's, it's overflowing with boat-building tools now at my age. And John said, what are you going to do with that? And my daughter uh, lives in Colorado. It's not going not gonna to take them. Mm-hmm. Um, he said you should donate them to the museum. You know, It's uh-huh. a good way to, to uh, if you have stuff around your house that's marine-related and you're wondering what to do with it, there you go. Penobscot Marine Museum. How, do they, how does somebody make a donation? Um, well, we do have a collections committee that will kind of review anything that's brought before us. Um, because we've been around since 1936, we do have a lot of artifacts. So we want to make sure that we're helping kind of fill out the story. And we also recognize that we are permanent stewards. We take very seriously our, you know, our responsibilities when we take items into our collection. So we want to be sure that they're kind of filling a gap and that we're capable of taking care of them long term. Um, but yes, yeah, our curator, Cipperly Good, is the best contact for talking about objects in our collection and any potential donations people might want to make to help tell that story. The curator is? Her name is Cipperly Good. Cipperly. Cipperly Good. Cipperly. Yep. <laughs> How do you spell that? C I P P E R L Y. That's a nice one. I've, yeah. <laughs> I've always been enamored with the unusual names. That's a good one. So um, 
if you uh, go from the first, well, you're looking at the pictures in the first museum, and then um, how, how does one go around the campus from there? Well, it's always fun because we have about 12 buildings, and we say about because it sort of depends on how you count all the outbuildings and mm. things like that. Um, but we kind of appreciate that we have something for everyone. So we try to help orient people a bit when they arrive. Um, and we do have an orientation exhibit to give them kind of the key themes in that admissions building. And then we also have some temporary exhibits throughout the campus that um, change each year to give some people some highlights of different things. Um, but we really try to get a sense of whether people are interested in the small boats and the sea captain's home and hands-on activities throughout campus um, and help guide them through their experience. Some people will spend a whole day, kind of go away for lunch and come back, um, mm. but usually a couple hours at least. Yeah. What, what is your um, current exhibit right now? Well, we have in our admissions building in that gallery, we have an exhibit of photographs from the National Fisherman Collection um, from the publication National Fisherman. Mm. Uh, we hold the photographs um, for, for that publication. And we have uh, Michael Crowley, who has been an author for National Fisherman, has written some of the stories behind those images in that gallery. Uh, yeah. So that's a great exhibit to get that. So you look at the photograph and below the photograph or next to it, there's a little paragraph or two. Explaining yep. it. Yeah. And yeah. That, that always helps. I appreciate the <laughs> little help when I look at things like that. 469, no, no, sorry, if you want to call Boat Talk, the number today is 618-8819 for Boat Talk. You can also email us, too, at boattalk at gmail.com. And we're talking with Linda from the Penobscot Marine Museum, the director of the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport. Um, so we're, we were traveling around the... the uh, the campus, and we've gone to the, one of the small buildings there, mm -hmm. the, one of the small ones. Which one has all the small boats? Well, I don't know if they're all the small boats, but which one, if you were looking for small boats, not models, but actual? Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, our small boat collection is mostly in sort of barns and outbuildings throughout the campus. So um, you can find your way to those from the admissions if you're interested in those. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we also have a couple other uh, temporary exhibits this year. Um, we have a really great exhibit um, by photographer Pim Van Hemmen, and he has taken photographs of mostly um, industrial commercial vessels and has printed them in these beautiful large-scale images um, that are printed on aluminum with this incredible process that makes them very vibrant and shiny. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So everyone loves colorful, vibrant, and shiny. Yeah, they, so. I've seen aluminum prints. Mm -hmm. they, they do pop, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> uh, so that one's great. And he's actually giving a talk later this week about that exhibit. Um, and then we have also partnered with the local high school students at Searsport's V-Alt program, which is their like Viking alternative program. That's their mascot. Um, and the students have looked at our um, classic portrait paintings, our ship portraits um, of our marine art, and they have done research into the history of the vessels depicted and the ports there, and they've written up what they've learned through their 
eyes about the ships, hmm. which has been a really interesting project because so many of those Searsport kids come from long lineages of sea captains and, um, and just don't really know that history. So it's been interesting to see them connect with um, the many generations before them, and they, you know, they carry the same names that you see on all our buildings. Can you remember any of the uh, specific quotes any of those kids made? I don't remember exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Sometimes their comments are, yeah. are great. Uh-huh. Yeah. They worked really hard with their teachers and with our um, education director to kind of refine their interpretive panels. And it was a semester-long project, year-long project, and they did an amazing job. So if people wanted to uh, hear the talk that you're going to be giving with the uh, the, the photographs that you t- just mentioned um is it a Zoom meeting, too? Yes. PIM will be speaking on campus, but it will be a hybrid um, Zoom mm-hmm. um, also. So we encourage people. There's plenty of information on our fresh new website so people can get the specific details and register if they want to get that Zoom link. Yeah, PenobscotMarineMuseum.org. Yes, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And that'll be this Thursday evening. Huh. Those are great photographs. So, um, um, unfortunately, John still hasn't been here. We, John usually does a boatyard report mm-hmm. this, at every show, and uh, it's interesting to hear all the things that are going on with all the um, boat builders up and down the coast. Do you have any direct connections or, uh, well, relations with any of the uh, boat builders? Not as much. I don't get off campus as much as I hope. That is one of the um, things that John and I had started a couple years ago. He would sometimes swing by and I'd jump in the truck and go along with him. So I'm hoping to start that up again soon. Yep. (laughs) Because some of those boat builders could tell some good stories. Yes, definitely. Yep. And that is a key about our museum, too, is that um, a lot of people think of us as a history museum, but we really see ourselves as multidisciplinary and also telling current stories. Um, So it's very important to us that we keep working with people like John who can help make sure that we're getting the current stories of what's going on. Um, You know, it's a bit of a cliche, but what happened yesterday is history Mm -hmm. also. And so we always want to make sure that we're addressing current issues, and then keeping collecting things that are happening now that will preserve those stories for the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, slightly off topic here, too, but we were, uh, I was doing some research earlier, and uh, you, I'm sure, are aware of the fiberglass boat building is using fiberglass fibers. Now there's, there's carbon fibers because they're supposedly the newest, greatest thing. I was read there's uh, beyond carbon carbon fibers. There's a uh, a material called um, graphene. It's sort of variation on graphite. Mm-hmm. Uh, graphene is where they take carbon and somehow can make it into a very flat sheet that's only one molecule thick. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a, it's an amazing science thing. It's forty forty three percent lighter than steel and 20 times stronger than steel That's so they, they, yeah <laughs> think about this material as a boat building material it's uh, uh the the boat builders here in maine are going to have some stories about that in the future <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> yeah it's it's Certainly. a pretty amazing material it also um can carry electricity and 
depending on which way you run the electricity through it, I'm being pretty ignorant about how to explain it, but it's, uh, it can either heat or cool. So you got this material that you can, they, well, this company now that's making it into boat seats for, wow. for power boats. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in hot weather you can be cool, in cool weather you can be warm. But this wow. amazing graphene material, it's a, if you're interested in boat building, look up graphene, G-R-A-P-H-E-N-E, pretty amazing material. So anyway, back to the museum. Um I keep interrupting the tour around here. We've been to the <laughs> to the boat sheds and uh-huh. we've seen the uh, the paintings. Uh, where are most of the uh, model ships? Um, those are throughout the campus in different locations. We do have a number in um, what we call our Marathew House, and in there on the main floor we have some of our uh, maritime ship paintings. Um, We also have um, exhibits about the industries of Penobscot Bay, so ice harvesting, granite, um, things like that, Mm -hmm. and shipbuilding, of course. Um, And then in the upper level, we have kind of open collection storage where we're able to put a a number of our, you know, prize ship models. And then, of course, we keep many, too, in our um, collection storage where we rotate them out. You have this person on, on campus who maintains those? Um, not specifically those, but that is part of what our curator does is he, cares for the collection. Yeah, so she's pretty exacting yeah. work. Yep. <laughs> yeah. He's a model citizen. <laughs> I say he. I, don't know, I assume it's a man, but I could be wrong. Yes, our curator is female, but we uh, work with a lot of other. Oh, there we yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> so. How many employees are there at the uh, Penobscot Marine Museum? Well, it's a big job. We only have about eight year-round full-time staff, and I know there are a lot of small museums that would covet that, but given that we have uh, three acres and 12 buildings yeah. and a vast collection, it's it's a, a hard-working team. And then in the summer when we're open to the public um, for visitation, we bring on a seasonal staff to cover store and um, we have wonderful interpretive frontline staff that um, do everything from help orient visitors to doing a lot of hands-on activities throughout the day so that um, people can really engage with what they're seeing. Uh, so we bring on probably another dozen employees in the open season. That's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. oh. a... Well, it is pretty seasonal. Are you open year-round? Our staff, we do have a year-round staff, and we do programming year-round, but in terms of walk-in visitation, we're open from around Memorial Day until the third weekend in October. Mm -hmm. Um, And so right now we're open just three days a week, Um, so Thursday, Friday, and Saturday from 10 to 5. And starting July 1st, we'll be open every day, and it gets really a busy time of year. Once and we your get website going. is open year round. Yes, right? <laughs> yes. And, and that is a good um, point is that um, we have a lot on campus, but we, as I mentioned earlier, have been very dedicated to public access. And part of that is what people can physically see when they visit us. But a lot of that is that we have worked very hard on having an interface with our catalog so that people can see all these images that we have been digitizing and cataloging over the years um, and the artifacts in our collection as well. If a person had a a relative, you know, three, four generations ago who used to be on the the boat, pick a name, the the boat walrus (laughs) for her name, Uh um, 
they can go to the Penobscot Marine Museum. Yep. And then how do they find information on the boat walrus from there? Right. So if you look in our collections um, tab, that will take you to our online database, our catalog. And then you could search in there and see if we have any images or artifacts. Um, we also have a link to our archives, finding aids. Um, so we might have some manuscripts that might relate to walrus. Um, or you can always just contact our library directly. We have some incredible volunteer researchers who can look through what manuscripts and resources we have to help conduct research as well. Mm -hmm. And can people come into uh, your library and do research right there on campus? Yeah, it helps if they have an appointment because then we can be prepared to help them better. Mm -hmm. But yeah, certainly. So do you have any uh, favorite stories of people who... uh, were have come here and had an unusual experience, or I'm sure an enlightening experience. <laughs> um, I don't know. The the stories are trickier, um, but we do. Uh, one of the things that we do each year, twice a year, is that we do gather some of the stories behind our collections and our manuscripts, um, and we do. Um, like sort of character acting evenings. So we have coming up in July, we have a, what we call ripped from the headlines. Um, so people can come to campus and see people reenacting stories that they have, uh, that we have found um, in the newspapers of the time. Um, and so that is a fun evening and a way to experience that one's coming up on June 29th. And then at the end of the season, we do a similar one that's a little more kind of spirited for Halloween time <laughs> in October. Yeah. Um, and so that one is tends to lean more towards shipwrecks and disaster. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, probably good for kids too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't make it too scary. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, speaking of kids, uh, I'm sure that when they come there and uh, see all the, these boats, uh, there must be some uh, pretty amazing, well, drop jaw comes to mind, but <laughs> some kids, you know, having eye-opening experiences with seeing these little boats and uh, learning about uh, days of yore, as it were. Yep. Yeah, certainly. And we have been really amazed that um, now that we are kind of pulling through the pandemic era, we have had a huge response to our field trip program this year. Um, We were able to raise funds at our um, big event last summer um, to help support bringing students to campus. Um, And we've had almost a thousand students in our first month of being open. So, um, and it's great because they get to Uh, tour the campus. They get to do hands-on activities. We have kind of a sail interactive where they get to learn how to raise and lower sails as a team, um, make origami boats, do Mm -hmm. fish prints, you know, learn about the age of sail. So you teach them shanties when they're raising the sails? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. (laughs) That's cool. So a thousand kids. Yes, that's it's been incredible. It's yeah. been really incredible to be able to see so many students because we had several years with very few field trips. How how would uh, a student get to be part of this? Um, we've reached out to sort of broadly to main schools and offered. Um, we're able to. We were able this year due to the fundraising we did to offer scholarships for the busing, um, and then free admission for the school groups. So. Mm. 
Yep, we've had schools from throughout the state coming to uh, experience the museum. So it's Do you have amazing. any return kids that were uh, hooked on it and want to come back second year or third yeah, year? Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of amazing thing is that we'll have kids come as part of a field trip, and then they'll come oh. back with their families to mm-hmm. um, show their parents what they learned. Okay. Um, so... Your um, your master of photography, I call him Kevin. I forget his last name. Yep, Kevin Johnson. Kevin yep. Johnson. He's our photo archivist. He's a pretty amazing fellow. That all this you know, knowledge of photographs that he has and what he's been doing for the museum. John's told me about him. Um, can you give us a little more information about Kevin and uh, what he has been doing or what he is? going to be doing? Yes. Yeah, Kevin has um, been at the museum, I think, about 15 years now, and he has been pivotal in helping us really expand our photograph collection. Um, One of his first big commitments was to the Eastern Illustrating Collection, um, and a lot of those are glass plate negatives that were used to print postcards um, throughout Maine and beyond. Um, And so he has helped uh, sort of save that collection and bring it to the museum. And that really kind of launched, you know, built off of what we had done in the past, but really moved us into a major commitment to that photography. Um, And from there, he's brought in a a number of other collections, both small and large, um, that are really incredible. Yeah. Um, You, I'm sure, just because of the fact that fiberglass boats are really recent phenomenon speaking as a maritime history so the majority of your boats are are wood do you have any uh, non-wood boats there not many no no, no. (laughs) the wooden boats have a a certain uh certain um certain quality to them and uh i don't know if you know who peter cass is now he's he is a, a wooden boat builder, mm-hmm. building boats today. And uh-huh. He's developed quite a quite a reputation, and uh, I have a little short uh, article here that we're going to play with uh, John and Dan Lee, who was an author, um, mm-hmm. talking about Peter Cass. So we'll go to that right now. Wonderful. So what did you think about your first uh, meeting with Peter? (laughs) Well, I mean, you can read the chapter I wrote. He, he, Peter's Peter's a great guy. You know, he. You know, he's got a, he's got an interesting story, right? He's, he's got an interesting life story. You know, he left, he left young, he left home young. He wanted to be a boat builder. He he overcame, you know, the way I saw it, he, you know, he overcame a lot of obstacles. Uh, he made it, him, you know, he, he made it, you know, on, on his own. Um, yeah, he had some help like all of us do. But I mean, um, I, I you know, the fascinating thing about me, about Peter Cass is just, you know, how, how he did that, how he was just a kid when he went up to Maine. And then, you know, he ended up one of the best wooden boat builders in, in Maine today. You know, it's interesting going into a shop because it's like stepping back 50 to 100 years. 
I mean, you know, it, and they still launch on a railway, which oh, is yeah. not usual anymore. You know, the yard's full of shavings. There's a lot of moles sitting around, station moles. Yeah. You know, it's it really is like going back, you know, 50 to 75 years anyways. Yeah, and that's what Dwight Carver said when I was up in Willis Beals boat shop on Beals. I, I talked to her, you know, Dwight's fisherman up yep. there. That's exactly what Dwight said. He said, I couldn't believe it when I went down there years ago for a launch. He said, I expected to see a big production operation. And Dwight said, you know, I couldn't tell the difference from a shop on Beals. <laughs> so, I mean, that's quite a compliment for a kid who grew up in the boat shops on Beals Island. So, yeah, that's the other fascinating thing about Pete. You know, he he does it in that old school traditional way, right? So. Mm -hmm. he, and you can tell from him how much he really loves what he does. Absolutely. It's all about the enjoyment of it. Yeah. And, you know, that's not the case, as you know, John, with a lot of boat builders. Um, you know, I one thing I try to do in this book is just be very truthful, right? Mm -hmm. I, I, I try to be honest and truthful. And, you know, the truth is a lot of these guys, I think, got into the, they got into it because, I don't know. They, their family was in it. Their father was in it. They kind of fell into it. They felt like they had no options. Not well, all of them, but yeah, you know. I think there's some of them. You know, you go to Jimmy Beal, and Keegan was in the shop for a little <laughs> while, but he didn't like it, so he never really worked in the shop. He did when he was, you know, <laughs> yeah, his, you know, teenage years and maybe early twenties. But after he was out on his own and fishing well and and doing okay. Out of the shop, he went. And, you know, there's some kids who absolutely love it. Look at Jeremy Beal. I mean, oh, yeah. he's a prime example of one kid who absolutely loved it. Yeah, so he's more like Pete Cass, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll say, I'm not disagreeing with you, John. I'm just saying that, you know, you know, over the years, there have been a lot of guys that I think have just done it because that's what they had to do, and they'd rather <laughs> would have been fishing, you know. But So, yeah, Pete's, Pete's great like that. He really does love it. Yeah, it was something for a lot of them. It was, and especially in the years when the economy for them was not good, where they had to do anything they could to survive, it was something to do in the winter. It was. Yeah. And, you know, Isaac, Isaac Beal is, is a really interesting character, as you know, lives, mm -hmm. lives up on, you know, Alley's Bay. And I went up to see Isaac and he, He's a very honest person, very straightforward person. He, he told me a lot of, lot of interesting things too, you know, around, around that, that kind of thing. And what Isaac told me is he said, you'd get one week's pay. And I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, he said, I didn't know what he was talking about. And he said, well, you work all winter and you'd get one week's pay. out of it." <laughs> well, said, it was okay. a it was something to do. Like you said, it was just something to do in the winter, you know? Right. But you also probably never got to uh, John Butler, but he always told me it was swapping a buck for a buck. He says, the only place you really make money is in storage and repair. <laughs> yeah. That's about that. That's, I did not talk to him, but that's, that's a common theme. You know, and yeah. I was, on, I was honest about that in the book. I said, this isn't something you want to get into. It's, it's something you do because you love, you know, um, it's not something that <clears throat> it's not something you do for the money. For but, sure. you, but you have to have a good business sense. You can't let things slide. You have to charge for everything 
you need to because there's too yeah. many pitfalls in boat building. Well, and that's that's a great point, John. Uh, the problem was, you know, as you know, they never uh, the, the tra- traditional boat builders never did that. You know, they mm-hmm. they did their thing where they uh, took payments in thirds, so they took a third up front, or or third, you know, third in the middle, and then when they launched the boat, they'd hoped that the buyer would pay them that last third. And, and you know, like with Bert Frost up in Jonesport, and he got stiffed at least a couple times. So, oh yeah. You know, one of them, uh, one of the guys was some kind of criminal from New York who just, you know, said, I'm not paying you, right? And and uh, according to, you know, Sooner up there at Jonesport Shipyard told me this stuff. But, you know, one of the guys was just this rich playboy who just seemed to think, you know, he didn't have to pay him. So he just didn't pay him. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, that, you know, early in my career, I walked into Randy Young, who's one of the sons of the Young brothers. And he had the same problem. He had the boat in the water, but he still had the boat. And, you know, today, you don't, if you don't sign the builder certificate, they can't, they can't do anything. They can't register that boat. So a lot of them will hold that builder certificate until they've got money in hand. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's an interesting, that's, that's good. You know, um, I mean, Doug Dodge, you know, some of them still do it the old way too, you know, um, <laughs> Doug, you know, Dougie, you know what? So he goes down and he, he sets up an account, you know, at the local Marine store and, and, and he puts it in the buyer's name, the boat buyer's name. And, and basically every single thing he adds to that boat goes in their name. Right. And so he ends up, um, I think Dougie looks at it like he, he makes his money off the off his labor, which he looks mm-hmm. at that as a safe way to do it, which <clears throat> yeah, who knows? I mean, it's better than the old way for sure. Right. So after Pete Cass, who'd you go see? Well, after I saw Pete Cass, um, you know, I, I Joe, Joe Lowell uh, came, came through for me. Um, huge Joe. After I went to CP Cast, you know, I knew I had to go. I had to go to Beals Island and Jonesport because I had to go. You know, that's where the history was. And I called up Joe Lowell out of the blue, and I just started talking to him about what I was trying to do. And I don't know if he thought I was crazy or what. Some guy from Massachusetts just, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't know anything, and I was, you know, but you know, it's funny, John, because he said to me, it was kind of a long pause, and talked to him for a while, and then he says. Hey, you know, I, I've got to go up to Beals. I've got to go up. And he, he was going up to look at um, one of Bert's boats. I forget which one it was, but he, he was going up last year to look at it to see if he could re- repair, you know, repair it for someone. He said, do you want to go with me? And I said, sure. I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'd love to go with you. So I went up with Joe and Megan. Um, it was a really big break for me because he, um, you know, I talked to Joe on the way up and rode up to Beals with him. We talked a long time. And when we got up there. He, he took me right to Willis's shop because he had a load of wood. He had a bunch of cedar that he wanted to drop for Willis to, for building his little boats, you know? Right. So I was able to walk in with Joe and kind of hung out and talked to Willis and that worked out great, you know? So that was the second person I, I interviewed. Was Willis? Yep. Yeah, Willis is a 
Very, very interesting man. I like Willis a lot. Yeah, he he's uh, Willis is not. Yeah, he's an outstanding individual. You know, I, I really felt, I, you know, it was uh, I, I expected something a lot different. And I don't know what I expected, but when I talked to Willis, I felt more like I was talking to like a banking executive than a than a tradesman. I mean, he's so you know what I mean. He's Willis is so well spoken, so mm-hmm. polite. Um, I, I don't know how else to describe it. You know, he it's. Uh, Kind of an amazing man, I guess. Oh yeah, and he and those models he builds are incredible. Yeah. So the day I went up, John, was the day that he launched the little uh, little version of the silver dollar. Yeah. It was April twenty third, twenty twenty one, and I I really didn't know what I was getting into, to be <laughs> honest. But Joe Joe said, you know, hey, there's something special going on here today. So you know, I walked in and. and the little the, the silver dollar was sitting there and it was you know of course it was absolutely beautiful and um there's a whole crowd of people in there and you know i got to see that whole thing which was kind of a mini version of the the traditional beals island boat launch so uh that was just fantastic yeah and the story behind that because it was actually built for a kid who saved up and saved up and saved up that wanted to buy the real silver dollar and unfortunately <laughs> But or maybe fortunately yeah. that boat went over to uh, Randy Durkee on uh, Islesboro and he's rebuilding it because it needed to be completely rebuilt. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. And the, the quality of Willis's work, right. You know, you, as you know, it's, it's museum quality work mm-hmm. <clears throat> even in his models. Right. So I was sitting there and the whole time I was thinking, my God, I mean, this thing has got to be going Sony, you know, and, and then they started talking about the kid, you know, the, the kid who was getting it. Like, right. I couldn't believe it, you know, but um, I thought it was, I thought it was great. You know, they were doing it for this kid. Did Willis tell you how many dollars an hour he makes doing his models? <laughs> uh, he told me a dollar 50. Yeah, that, that, that's about right. Cause I think one of them, he calculated it and it came out a buck and a quarter. <laughs> and I said, you don't care, do you? And he goes, Nope. He just loves, he's another one like Pete Cass. He loves what he does. Yeah, he, d- he wouldn't he does. trade it for anything. Yeah, you, you, you get that from him. Def- yeah, definitely. Yep. And, he, and his models should sell for way more than what they do. He had that same argument with Alvin. Alvin Beal built uh, what he calls a playboat, which, you know, the, but they were five footers. Yeah. And, Willis had an argument with Alvin that he was charging too little, but Alvin wouldn't take any more money than what he asked for. Yeah, I get it. You know, I come from an old Yankee family too. You know, you don't want to overcharge people. You know, you want to be honest about things and, but sometimes that, that plays against you, you know, in the, in the business world, that was another one of my themes in the book, John, you know, one of the themes I tried to bring, bring out was, you know, that, that whole financial, that whole financial theme, you know, go, again, going back to how they, how the builders charge for their boats, wh- why it was so hard for them to make money, you know, right. um, it was just interesting to me from like an economic, <clears throat> economic point of view, you know, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that obviously had to do with the fact that they were out in Maine <clears throat> and, you know, it was interesting to me because the guys, a lot of the guys were going up buying these boats lived down here by me in Cohasset, Mass., Situate, Marshfield, 
So they were going up to Jonesport Beals, you know, RMDI or whatever, and they 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 knew that it was a different uh, you know, labor rate, different economy up there. So they knew oh, they yeah. could get them cheaper. But you know, it's almost it, it almost. I mean, I kind of feel terrible when I look at the whole history of it. What you know, I feel like they should have made more money off their boats. Oh, they should have. But they, you know, when I first started, Willis was charging seven dollars an hour for himself and five dollars for his helper, and that would have been the late eighties. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's all they charged. They didn't think that that you know it was worth yeah, more. Yeah. That they could get more, and they really could have. You know, Willis at the time was building those torpedo stern boats. You know, that's it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And they were, you know, they were difficult to build. Alvin was still alive. So we could ask Alvin a little bit about the torpedo stern boats and get the idea about what he needed to do to change it because they were going to put a 454 Chevy in it with a lot of power. And those boats were not made for power. Because, of course, in the old days, you would have had, what, 150, maybe 200 yeah. horsepower? You should have had 292s like your boat, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, so, John, why is the torpedo stern not good for power? Well, it was mostly, it wasn't the torpedo stern itself. It was the idea of how wide they were. They weren't very wide. No, they were and narrow. How, yeah, and, you know, the more power you gave, the more they'd lean over and lay, lay on its side. Yeah, you know. So what they did is they just kept widening them. That's uh, John Johansson talking with uh, Dan Lee about Peter Cass and some other boat builders here. So Linda, have you ever had a boat builder come and talk about uh, how to build a lobster boat in forty-five minutes? <laughs> Uh, we do have a lot of speaker series, um, and we um, certainly bring in a lot of those stories throughout uh, the museum. I yes. think, yeah, <laughs> if you uh, maybe team up with Kevin and uh, take a picture of a boat every uh, week or two and uh, show how it grows from just being a keel to having the, uh, the frames put in and uh, the planks put on and actually becoming what looks like a boat finally um it's a pretty visual kind of a lecture i think yeah that would be wonderful like a time lapse of the boat building certainly we'll have to follow up on that and have a have kevin come in sometime and talk about (laughs) his experience and learning how to build a, a lobster boat so what else is going on at the museum besides just a the, the, the interesting lecture that you're going to be having on the photography. Yeah, yeah. Well, we ha- we keep the season busy since we're seasonal, and so we make sure that there's a lot going on throughout the summer and into the fall um, so that people can experience our campus in a lot of different ways. So we have um, kind of something for everyone this season. So we'll kick off. We had our opening just a couple weeks ago, and as we mentioned, the lecture this week, Um, And then we have, once we get through the field trip season and schools are out, uh, Wednesdays in July, we'll have special programming for kids and families so that they can have extra activities each Wednesday when they come to the campus. What's the age range for this? 
Um, we really ge- generally broadly, whatever you know, school people age. feel like. Yeah, yeah roughly yeah. school age. Okay. Um, and we try to keep the parents entertained too, but we'll um, kind of have four different themes. So we'll look at lobsters, um, boats, tide pools, and signal flags as ways to kind of engage those kids and families with mm-hmm. a little more hands-on learning. Um, and then in Thursday evenings and kind of late July um, or into June and July, we'll be doing guided walking tours. Um, um, and uh, we have a big up-and-coming scene, as people know, in Searsport with a lot of new restaurants and things. So we think this will be a fun way for people to kind of come out, explore some of the local dining options, and then have a walking tour throughout our campus. Uh, we'll also have a series of author um, book signings on Thursday evenings at the same time. So there'll be a lot going on mm-hmm. in Sierra Sports Little Downtown. So your walking tour is going to be uh, just one person leading the tour? Or are you going to do it in groups? Yeah, we'll have groups, and mm-hmm. then they'll be kind of themed throughout the summer, too. So um, some of them will focus on, like, the architecture on our campus. Another will look at women's roles um, as men went to sea and as they traveled with them. Um, and we'll have themes throughout. Mm-hmm. You have a lot of nice brick buildings there. Yes. Do, uh, <laughs> is that? Do you happen to know if those are local bricks? Um, I believe so. They yeah, are. we have. Yeah, and we do have many of our about eight of our buildings are in the National Register. So um, it's an interesting campus because it it really gives that historic village feel. Um, people often ask us if we moved the buildings there to kind of stage the village, but they're all original to their foundations, and um, it really gives a beautiful historic effect. So um, that's, it's nice to be able to focus on that for an evening, too. Yeah. All right. Um, this is a non-commercial radio station, so we can't talk about actual fees to the to the museum but there is there is a, a small fee to uh, to see the museum by the day but it's isn't completely reasonable and, and how much of your income do uh, fees make up um they're a portion of it but um certainly not the largest yeah yeah, yeah. do you have um any new acquisitions that you uh, haven't put out yet that you're uh, excited about? Yeah, that's a great question because that's something that we're always collecting, whether it's items that are smaller or larger. Um, And one of the ones that we're fairly excited about is um, we are acquiring a one of just a handful of Buckminster Fuller's rowing needles um, there was a nice article about those in the... Rowing needles? Yep, that's what he called them. So it was <laughs> basically, uh, they, it looks like almost two metal needles on each side with a seat above them. Um, and he designed this when he was living on North Haven. And he um, would row it around there. And so we have we have a donor who is helping us acquire one of those. So, you know, speaking of new technologies and mm. creative approaches to That's boats, um, it looks like nothing at all in our collection. So it will be a fun thing just to kind of show uh, creative approaches to That's pretty interesting. Do you have boats. any pictures of that? 
Um, there are some around. Yeah, mm-hmm. there was a nice article in Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine so, about the, about Buckminster Fuller's invention. Yeah, they I'd tracked down. Like some to see photos. a video of it in action. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Well, definitely. Once we get that in our hands, we'll be publicizing that and sharing that mm-hmm. a bit more. How did you get those? Um, we had a donor who helped us find them um, because they were interested. In you went looking sure, for them. Yeah, mm. or the donor did, making sure that yep. we had that represented in our collection. Huh. So she helped us acquire those. Huh. Yep. There's, there's a, quite a fringe element to uh, boat building where strange things have been built. Uh, I, what comes to mind now is uh, foiling dinghies. But uh, we have another phone call, so we'll... Go back to Fred from Tenants Harbor. Hello, Fred. What's up? And uh, so I read. Oops, I got the radio all the way down. There we go, all the way down. Okay. Uh, big fan of uh, uh, his mind, and uh, uh, I I think he was on Bear Island, which is close to North Haven, uh, a family place perhaps. And I read about the. The rowing needles and perhaps one or two other, quote, uh, nautical inventions uh, that he came up with. And it's just wonderful to hear him mentioned and to, uh, heck, the rowing needles were uh, a variation on catamaran. Right, yep. And uh, so uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe get one of those or just a, a nod to it in the museum. Uh, uh, get one of what? Rowing needles. Uh, Sit down rowing needles. Yeah, they they just did get uh, one. Or at least a a model. One set. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a worthy uh, worthy project for somebody, perhaps. I'm sure it'll be up on the website pretty soon. So, yes. All right. All right. Love the program. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Sorry for the static there. I'm not sure just what was happening, but um, it's all better now. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Is there anything that I haven't said that you would like to cover before we have to end up the show? Well, I think we've done a great job covering the season, and I appreciate you having us here. Um, I mean, really, the key is that we have so many different things going on on campus, and there are so many different exhibits depending on people's interests. You know, in the off-season, we even have – um, workshops about the textiles in our exhibit and handicrafts and needle crafts and because that's a big part of that history too. So um, for me, what's been wonderful about being at the museum is just the breadth and the depth of our collections and activities um, and really kind of finding the thing that piques people's interest in learning more about Maine's maritime history and getting excited about that and learning even more. So you have um, any – I've lost it uh, – any um, people who are, are want to talk about um, the uh, 
non-marine things at the Marine Museum. I know Kevin has had some uh, interesting uh, farm photographs in there. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, our photograph collection in particular really kind of branches out because we've worked so hard to um, gather some of these collections like the Eastern Illustrating Collection, which depicts a lot of maritime history, but then also um, you know, more rural and inland history as well. So people who have some old collections can make a donation even if they're not marine related. Yeah, usually we try to find some hook that kind of relates them into a broader collection that we hold um, so that we kind of focus on our maritime mission. But um, yeah, we certainly have a more extensive collection as well. Mm-hmm. Well, just a couple of minutes left here. Got time for one quick phone call if you'd like to make one at 618-8819, but just a couple of minutes left, so it would have to be a quick one. Um, Another event that we have coming up, speaking of things that are kind of tangential to our maritime collection but related, is that on July 11th, we will be celebrating E.B. White's birthday um, in partnership with our local Carver Memorial Library in Searsport. Um, we have a boat, a brutal beast in our collection that was his. Brutal beast. <laughs> I've forgotten that. And name. we um, are thrilled to ha- to focus on the literary connection. So we'll have mm-hmm. kind of an open mic reading night. We did this a few years ago. Um, and it was just a lovely time to gather in the evening, buy our small boats, um, see his boat, and then also um, have people come up and share kind of their favorite inspired readings by him, and we've got the full range from his children's stories to his political essays to his New Yorker contributions. So, yeah, and of course you have the the Joel White connection there exactly, too. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, and you'll you can see that thread through our yeah. new Rusticators exhibit. Yeah. Well, we have just about sailed through the uh, full hour of boat talk. Time to uh, wrap things up, and thanks to Linda from the Penobscot Marine Museum, and if. You want to help keep things going, um, well, future-wise, I guess we'll call it, contact the Penobscot Marine Museum. Yes, thank you. And that's Karen Smith, Executive Director at the Penobscot Marine Museum. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you, Karen. (laughs) Thanks to Pepin in the engine room.